All right, let's jump into Ezekiel, jump back into Ezekiel. And go to chapter 24, and we will we'll pick up there. And again, let's ask the Lord's uh, help as we, we dive back into this book. So, Our Father, we thank you for tonight, and again, uh, this time to think a little more extensively about uh, what you have communicated through the prophet Ezekiel. And so give us... Um, eyes to see things and ears to hear, hearts to understand as we marvel over what you've done uh, and what you've promised to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last time uh, we left off in the middle of the book. Uh, we made it, made it halfway through. Um, so I'm just going to briefly kind of cover some of the things. And the handout has the main points from last time. If you want the handout from last week, I have extra copies of those as well. Um, but you'll recall that Ezekiel, he's a prophet where? In Babylon, right? So this is during the time of the exile of Judah, or the exile of Judah is coming to its full uh, fruition. Um, so Israel has already been exiled. Remember, a contemporary of Ezekiel would be Jeremiah. Jeremiah was back in the land and then uh, prophesying for a longer time than Ezekiel uh, did. Remember, Ezekiel we call the prophet of visions because his book is full of of visions. Um, Now, in the first 23 chapters last time, we were looking at, really, it's the indictment of the nation of Israel. Again, their sin is described quite clearly. The judgment that is that is coming upon Israel. You remember uh, that scene that where where Ezekiel lays on his side for a total of four hundred and thirty days, which is describing uh, he's 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 demonstrating the destruction of Jerusalem that's going to come because he was supposed to build that little model of Jerusalem and put siege works up against it, saying this is what's going to happen happen to the city. So. All these chapters are leading up to the point where we're at in chapter 24, which is the final destruction of the city. Uh, the other, remember we talked about this too, the three histor- or three uh, deportations, the first one, uh, and I'm not going to get the dates right at all, so I'm not even going to try, but you had Jehoiakim was the first king, and uh, there is the exile under them. Then we had Jehoiachin, and you always remember Jehoiachin went to Babylon and was given a, a good name and a seat and died as a king, essentially, in Babylon. And then the third deportation is the one we're going to look at here, starting in chapter 24 under Zedekiah. Zedekiah, bad guy, had his eyes plucked out, went to Babylon, and died there. Okay? And under Zedekiah, the city of Jerusalem uh, is, is destroyed. Okay? Um, the other, uh, we talked about the number of themes in the book of Ezekiel, and one of the key themes is that of the presence of the Lord. Remember, that's the, the vision of the whirling wheels, the uh, some people, uh, I was listening to a message from D.A. Carson this last week on a couple of chapters in here. He calls it the, the whirling or the mobile char- char- throne chariot, although he calls it a uh, mobile throne chariot because he's like Canadian or something like that. Uh, and it's moving from place to place. But the, the idea is that the presence of God is not contained to one locale. One locale. Uh, it's in, he's in Babylon, he's in Judah and Jerusalem, he's not forsaken his people, and he's, uh, he's responding specifically, remember that, that uh, when Ezekiel has the vision of the temple and he sees people worshiping the sun in the temple and they think, the Lord doesn't see us, 
We can do as we please. And so Ezekiel is reminding the people, the Lord sees, he, he does, he's bringing judgment. He has not forsaken you. Uh, he is, uh, his presence is, is everywhere. And then remember those chapters, I think, that are really important in chapter 16, 20, and 23, those long chapters of Israel's history of rebellion, and especially that chapter 16 one, right, where we have Israel described as that baby that is rescued, but like it had been just born and dumped out in the wilderness, hadn't even had the blood cleaned off of it. And he says, I rescued you, I raised you, you became a beautiful uh, royal, and then you sold yourself into prostitution. But you were worse than that, right? Because you didn't even receive money for your prostitution, you paid. You paid others for, your, uh, for, for being a prostitute. So that you see in chapter 16, 20, and then in chapter 23, you see it personified again with these two sisters that are prostitutes, and this time we see the judgment according to the law falling on, on Israel. Um, the other important theme, right, was that Ezekiel, while he's detailing Israel's sin, he is promising something far greater, forgiveness. Right, at the end of chapter 16, just flip there to look at it. I think maybe some of the, the best book, uh, verses in the book, chapter 16 Verse 60, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. And look down at verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may be remember, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. So the, the Lord will atone for Israel's sin, he will forgive them, he will pardon them. So there's this promise of a better day coming. Okay, so that gets us up to chapter 24, and, and we're also, remember, dividing the book by the visions that he receives. So uh, each vision is set off by a new date and a time and a place where he has it, so that's kind of how we're following it. But you can also divide it in terms of up to the exile, in the destruction of Jerusalem, and then after that. So chapter 24 is really kind of a, a middle point of the book, both numerically and historically, right? 24, right in the middle, perfect, a 48-chapter book, okay? So this begins a new section in chapter 24. In 588 BC, the siege of Jerusalem begins. Jerusalem falls in 586 BC, so they're under siege for quite a while, which again, you remember those prophets, uh, uh, I think it was in Ezekiel or Jeremiah, I can't remember, where, where he's describing a day that's going to come where the Lord says, I think it was in Ezekiel, a judgment like this has never fallen before and will never fall again. Fathers will consume their sons. Sons will consume their fathers, right? The, the, the siege will last so long, people will die of starvation. I mean, they're going to commit to cannibalism. That's how, how bad things will, things will be. So, 588 BC, this siege begins where Nebuchadnezzar comes up against Jerusalem and will destroy it. And I've entitled this, Yahweh has now brought the judgment to its full end. Jerusalem is falling. So in chapter 24, you see in verse 2, the Lord tells Ezekiel of the siege of Jerusalem that it has begun. You see in verses 3 through 6 that this siege is envisioned like a pot of stew. Israel is the meat in the pot. Um, Back in chapter 11, there was this uh, same language used when Ezekiel is told to prophesy against wicked counselors. Uh, and these wicked counselors, if we go back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah had sent a letter to the exile saying, uh, build houses, 
in the land of Babylon, plant gardens, get married, uh, seek the welfare of the city where you're at. And these wicked counselors come and say, oh no, this isn't going to happen. And they prophesy that actually uh, like Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, they're the meat, right? And that, 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 that they're going to come to an end soon. They'll be released from the land. This exile isn't going to happen. So here, Ezekiel is kind of using the reverse type of language on those in the land of Jerusalem. Those in Jerusalem are the meat in the pot. Um, We see down in verse 15, the Lord uh, comes and tells Ezekiel that his wife will die. And and again, with so many of the prophets, their entire lives are demonstrating what the Lord is doing. So the Lord says, your wife's going to die. Um, and so Israel, the Lord's bride, is about to die, in a sense, under judgment. Is kind of the picture that is, uh, I think, being communicated. So Ezekiel is told, don't mourn your wife, uh, even as she dies, just as the people in Babylon are not to mourn, but they shall rot away in their iniquities and groan to one another. You see that in verse 23. Your turban shall be on your head, your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Okay, so just as this is, uh, just as Ezekiel is demonstrating what the people in Babylon are to be doing. Okay, um, and then notice in verse twenty-seven that the Lord says, "I will open your mouth again." You all the way back to when the Lord first called Ezekiel. One of the things he'd done was shut up his mouth. He could not speak unless the Lord gave him a word to speak. So he's been mute this entire time. Now the Lord has loosed his tongue so he can speak again. And then we get to chapter 25, and we see four prophecies against Israel's closest neighbors. So Ammon, Moab, and Seir, Edom, and Philistia. You'll remember like uh, Moab, always think of Moab, think of Ruth, right? So this is one of the nations that surrounds Israel. They're down here, kind of. And then Edom is a little further south. Edom is the descendants of Esau. Philistia was on, would be on the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, kind of down towards Egypt. Uh, these are nations that are always antagonizing Israel, and so the Lord has not forgotten them. And the, the point of these, these prophecies, these judgments, is that these nations will be judged for the how they have set themselves up against Israel. So the Lord was dealing with his people, and then he will deal with these other nations as well. Then we get to chapter 26, and we enter into another series of uh, visions and prophecies. These are set now after the judgment. So this is in 586 BC. So Jerusalem has fallen, and Ezekiel receives these new, uh, new visions. And here I've entitled this, Yahweh will bring judgment on the other nations who have exalted themselves against him. So chapters 26 through 32 are all dealing again with surrounding nations. Uh, It's expanding beyond the borders of Israel. Look at chapter 26, verse 3. We see Tyre. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. So uh, you see in chapter 28, verse 2, uh, Tyre has been proud, they've exalted themselves, and so the Lord is going to bring them down. Uh, Tyre, you'll remember, it was a nation that had a tremendous amount of natural resources. When Solomon was building all those building projects, right, a lot of that came from Tyre. Uh, the, uh, so much of the, the timber and stone and things like that. Then we get in chapter 28, verse 22, we see Sidon. Um, 
Here we see, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. So the Lord's judgment will display his glory as he brings judgment on the people. Egypt, of course, we're familiar with with much of Egypt. They also, we see in chapter 31, it's their pride that brings, brings them down. But look at chapter 29, verse 3. And then verses 6 and 7, the Lord says, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, My Nile is my own. I have made it for myself. And down verses 6 and 7, Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they grasped you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins to shake. Uh, Remember, the temptation for the nation of Israel is always to return to Egypt. We saw that with, remember, with Jeremiah and the exiles in the land when they rebelled against uh, Gedaliah, who was the governor put in place. What they want to do? Flee down to Egypt. Jeremiah says, don't do it. Um, they, other times in their history, they depended upon Egypt to protect them. Uh, so each, Pharaoh's chariots and horses would be their deliverance, and the prophets would come and say, "Don't trust in, don't trust in Egypt." So that even that language of uh, a staff of reed, if I remember, there's one of the other uh, prophets talks about it, uh, Egypt being a staff of reed. Like the point is, you can't lean on them; they're not dependable. They'll they'll break down. So this is what what Egypt has been. But again, their pride will bring them down. So that leads us to chapter thirty three. Um, and this portion here, we see again this idea of Ezekiel as the watchman. Remember, this was something that was introduced in his first, I think back in chapter 3, uh, where he is, is told that he is to be a watchman. And remember, the watchman prophet's responsibility is to warn of coming judgment. So they see the sword of the Lord coming, and they are to announce this, this judgment is coming. And if they do that the blood of the people will be on their own heads. If they fail to announce that judgment, then the, the blood falls on the prophet's own head. Okay? So the point in this chapter, I think, is that, well, one, the, the main point is that Ezekiel is Israel's watchman, but I also think that following on the heels of all these pronouncements of judgment on other nations, is there not also the same word to the other nations? If they were to hear of the Lord's coming judgment, if they were to repent of their sin, they would be saved. I think Nineveh is a perfect example of this, right? Uh, the Lord sends Jonah, they hear of the judgment, and they repent, unlike Israel really ever did. So uh, I think that's kind of, kind of the point. Um, look at the goal of judgment in verse 11. It is repentance. Uh, the Lord is not cruel or unjust or vindictive. So he says in verse 11, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Look at verse 17. Uh, Israel does not see their sin, therefore they think that the Lord's justice in judgment is an injustice. If you don't recognize your sin... um, then, then you would think, you know, well, don't we see this today in the, in the uh, notion of tolerance, right? That, that tolerance is just allowing me to do whatever I want. And, and it's unjust of you to, to say that what I'm doing is, 
sin according to the Bible, right? So here's the same thing. It's a, an age-old age problem. Okay, then let's jump to chapter, the verse 21 of chapter 33, and we are in another section here. And this I've entitled, Yahweh will restore Israel for the sake of his name and fame. And this will lead us all the way up to, to chapter 40. Now, um, for the initial audience, the visions and prophecies from this point forward would have reminded and instructed the people of Israel that there is hope. That's really what these, these prophecies are doing. Just like, remember, Jeremiah had that little book of consolations, or that little book of hope in the midst of a book of real judgment. The Lord is, is reminding his people in exile, this is not the end. There is a future. There is a hope for the nation. I have not forsaken my covenant promises to Abraham and to David. I will fulfill those things, okay? So really, in these chapters, chapter 33, all the way through the end of the book, they can really be summarized in this way. They are looking forward to a day when Yahweh's shepherd, a descendant of David, will be shepherd over his people. Now, think about what Jesus said when he said, I am the what? The good shepherd, right? So we see that fulfillment coming to pass. A day is coming where the land will be restored like Eden. We'll see language uh, that's describing the restoration of the mountains and hills and the valleys uh, just like uh, Eden was. A day is coming when Yahweh will establish a new covenant with his people. And in that covenant, every member will know the Lord, have the law written on their hearts. And there's a day coming when the Lord, his name will be over Jerusalem. Jerusalem's name will be changed to the Lord is here. Because again, the nation of Israel, as they lived in obedience, they had that blessing of the presence of the Lord dwelling in their midst. Now, um, a couple of uh, a couple of people that I listened to this last week uh, help, gave me some helpful terminology when thinking about, again, prophetic Old, Old Testament prophecies. I got to think about how to word this, right? I'm tongue-tied tonight. Um, but one guy talked about when, when the prophets of the Old Testament look to the future, they see all, everything as one package, right? Uh, they look forward and they see everything as the new creation, Right? They see everything as uh, the, the promised fulfillment completed. They don't, they don't necessarily see different distinct timetables. They just see it all coming in at one time, essentially. But at the same time, they also can view it like a mountain. Right, You see a mountain in the distance, but as you get closer, there are mountain ranges within that. And oftentimes in their prophecies, they seem to go from mountain range about Christ to mountain range of the new creation, back and forth. And we, it's, you, you, it's our responsibility to try and determine what are they talking about? What time frame are we working in? Okay, um, so there's varying peaks, and there's not always this reference to a specific specific timetable. So that's why, as we get to especially chapters 38 to 48, there's so much uh, confusion and so many different ways of interpreting when these things are happening, if they're going to happen, how they'll come to pass, all of those those different things. Okay. Um, the other thing to think about, too, is, again, with, with prophecy, there's always, there is usually an initial component to it, a future component, and a future future. So things can have multiple fulfillments in them, right? Uh, Pastor Jess talked about this when we were in the Olivet Discourse, if you remember. Uh, you know, you saw that destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Could there be a, a partial fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies there, and yet a 
greater fulfillment yet to come. Okay, so we just got to remember those things as we're dealing with future prophecies. Does that make sense? Aaron. Yes. Christ is the completion of all things. Yeah. But there's still a timetable that the Father operated in right. He said, even Jesus said, only the Father knows the day, the hour, and the time. Yes. And so I just, because even I've encountered some people recently about this, mm-hmm. it's like, it's all done in crisis. It's a done deal. Mm. Yes, but even for us, we have the privilege of looking back on the prophecies. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're really referencing what Pastor Jess talked about a lot, that the necessity for a humble eschatology, right? We don't have all these things figured out. And so we hold them loosely. I would add with that, I was thinking about this, this passage that we just looked at with the Ezekiel is the watchman thing. There are like groups of Christians that think that that's our responsibility to be now, that we're like the watchman on the wall. And I don't think that's our responsibility. I don't think we see an Ezekiel type watchman person that is looking at, essentially what they're doing is they're looking at the news events of the day and saying, oh, look, here's the sword of the Lord coming in judgment. Uh, I don't think that's our responsibility, right? The, as, yeah, exactly, right. And Exactly, yeah. Our responsibility as a church is to proclaim the gospel. And so I think we just need to be, be careful about that because it can be, uh, I just don't, it's not our, our responsibility. Okay, so let's jump into uh, chapter 33, starting in verse 21. Again, the, this is telling us that, that after a long siege, Jerusalem has been uh, struck down. We see in 33, 24, those left in the land think they will flourish, but yet we see in verses 27 and 28, they will not. Those who... who who stay there, who have rebelled against the coming judgment of Nebuchadnezzar, will continue to face judgment. So then we get to chapter 34, and we see this passage uh, about Israel's failed shepherds. Um, And the point of this is that there were religious leaders who cared not for the sheep, and they fed themselves instead. Uh, You know, we think about Again, there's some, some application, I think, to, you know, an elder pastor today is a shepherd, an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, and we are held accountable for how we shepherd the flock of God, as Peter, Peter tells us. Um, but in Israel's day, again, there were leaders, religious leaders, who were failing in their responsibilities to care for the, 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 the flock, okay? Um, and what... what Ezekiel does, or what the Lord does through him, is he details the failures of the shepherds. But he does that in order to set up what Yahweh is going to do instead. So look at, um, you see like verses 10 and 11, the shepherds have fed on the sheep. They're not supposed to be eating them, they're supposed to be caring for them. But instead, what we see is that Yahweh will come and rescue his sheep from these shepherds. Verse 14, he's going to bring them to good pasture. Verse 17, he will separate sheep from goats. I think I think Jesus has to be referencing this when he's talking about the great throne judgment, right? He will separate the sheep from, from the goats in Matthew 25. Um, and then look at verses 22 through 24. A new shepherd will be set up from the lineage of David. So let's read those verses. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up, set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. 
He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Even that, I just caught that now, even that language of of my servant David shall be prince among them. We're going to see that in just a couple chapters in chapter 40s, or chapter 40 through 48 with the prince, who I believe is obviously Jesus, and this connects in there as well, okay? So the Lord will do what Israel's leaders have failed to done, to do, to do, <laughs> to done, right? Just wanted to see if you're awake and caught my, my grammatical mistake. Uh, but this is a theme, just like we saw in chapter 16. Israel's horrible sins, but the Lord says, I'm going to atone for him anyway. Here you failed as a shepherd, I will be your, be your shepherd, okay? Chapter 35, <coughs> excuse me, we have this prophecy against Mount Seir, uh, and really, the, the, the point of this passage, that the prophecy against Mount Seir is to be understood as a prophecy against Edom, the nation of Edom. And Mount Seir is to Edom what Mount Zion is to Israel. Okay, So remember that uh, uh, oftentimes, you know, like you think about in the Psalms, like, let us go up to Mount Zion. Right? That's talking about, like, let us go up to Jerusalem. That's, that's the... Uh, holy place in Israel. So Mount Seir is the same thing, but this is a prophecy of judgment against them. And then we get to chapter 36, and we see this prophecy to the mountains and valleys of Israel. Verse 3 says, they have been laid waste and bare. Verse 7, the nations that have done this, though, will be laid waste and bare. Verse 8, these mountains and valleys shall flourish. Verse 21, the Lord will restore Israel because he is concerned for his holy name. So I, we're talking about a, a future restoration of the land in this, in this passage. Verse 22, he will act for his sake in spite of Israel's profaning of the name of Yahweh amongst the nations to where they have been exiled. So even though Israel has gone into all these other nations and have still impugned the name of the Lord, he's acting for his name's sake. Verse 24, he will gather and bring back to the land. Verse 25, he will sprinkle with clean water and cleanse them. Verse 26, we should just, we're familiar with these passages, right? Because this is the promise of the new covenant. So notice what the Lord is, again, he is doing all of this for his name's sake in spite of what the people have done. Verse 26, he will give a new heart and a spirit. Verse 27, he will cause them to walk in his statutes because of the spirit dwelling in them. Verses 28 through 30, he will cause them and the land to flourish. Uh, So just think, this is a, a total restoration that is happening. Uh, verse 35, it's a, like a cosmic restoration, a new Eden. Look what he says. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. So just as, remember God's goal or his, his, the ideal in Eden was wrecked by sin, his plan is to make it all like that again, right? It will be restored to this wonderful New creation like Eden. It is interesting. Sometimes, if you're a marker in your Bible, just go through chapter 30, uh, 36 and mark all the I statements that the Lord makes. I will do. I have done. I do. I act. All these uh, things where the Lord is saying, I will do this for my name's sake. Right? He is accomplishing all of these things. Uh, he, w- he will bring it to pass. Um. The, I think the other thing to note, because we, so we look at like verses 22 through 
27. And we, we immediately, we know that he's talking about the, the promise of the Spirit and the new covenant. Jesus comes right in, and in the Last Supper says, this, covenant, or this blood is the uh, covenant of my blood, the new covenant which I'm establishing. And then in Acts chapter 2, with the coming of the Spirit, we see that we now have the Spirit dwelling in our hearts. And even what we read this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul is saying uh, that the Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance to it. So this is this already not yet aspect, because we have that completely and fully. The new covenant is here, we are a part of it. But yet all these other things like, I will make the land like Eden, has that come to pass yet? No. It's, it's close. <laughs> That's true, yeah. No, okay. I don't... You know, they have water and all those things, yeah. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Yeah, exactly. So, but uh, the, it's still not like it will be in the end. It's not fully completed, not fully there yet. So I think this we need to see is this is the already not yet aspects of the new covenant. Then we get to chapter 7, and we get this passage, the dry bones of restored Israel. Uh, so uh, an interesting vision that Ezekiel has. Right, verse 1, the hand of the Lord is upon me, and he brought me out, and the Spirit of the Lord set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around. Look at verse 3. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord, you know. Then he said, prophesy over these bones. And what he does is he prophesies over them, breathes life into them, and they come to life. Okay, um, And in this chapter, D.A. Carson brought this out, there is a, uh, there's a metaphor to be seen here of resurrection. Right? Uh, that which was dead is brought to life. And it's even like a new creation resurrection because it's the spirit of God that is breathed into the dust and raised to life, just like Adam. So there's a lot of metaphors and correlation that is to be seen there. But verse 10, we see, we understand what this is. Israel is like in, in exile there, like dry bones. Verse 12, Yahweh will raise them to life and bring them to life. Verse 14, Yahweh will give spiritual life to that which is spiritually dead. Okay, so this is, I think, talking about a transformation of heart that's going to happen. Um, perhaps this is uh, when Paul says in, I think it's in Romans 11, this future salvation of many Jews, right? In a future, I believe that would be in the millennial kingdom, right? That's perhaps what he's, he's referencing here, a spiritual life. Uh, Stephen Dempster said, the people themselves realize that their plight requires nothing less than resurrection. The divine spirit assembles the bones into a mass of skeletons, applies muscles, ligaments, and skin, and then inspires the renewed bodies with new life. Thus is created a mighty new humanity that can be placed in a new Eden. And I think that's what he's going to continue to describe. Look at verses 15 through 28. Yahweh will reunite Israel and Judah. Remember, there was that division in the kingdom. Uh, the, the ten tribes have been scattered. Uh, he will reunite them. And the, isn't the Mormons that think the lost tribes of Israel are the, are the Native Americans in America, isn't that what they believe? Something like that. It's really, really wacky and weird. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah. That was rabbit trail. That was for free. Um, Look at verse 24, David shall rule over them. So again, another uh, key uh, theme that is being brought out. Verse 25, they will dwell in their land. Verse 27, Yahweh will dwell 
in their midst. And then we get to chapters 38 and 39. So we have all this restoration language, people being raised to life, and we run into a, an enemy, Gog, right? Um, and we're descri- what we see is uh, this in verse 9, this nation Gog will come against a restored Israel, okay? Um, and Yahweh, we see in verse 16, will vindicate his holiness to all the nations when Gog comes against the land. So look at verse 16. You, speaking about Gog, will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So it seemed to be describing, right? Again, the Lord is, he wants his holiness he wants his name to be known, and he will do this by defending Israel against this nation that he brings up against, against them, okay? Um, uh, look at verses 21 through 23. Yahweh, uh, this is in chapter uh, 38. Yahweh will judge and destroy Gog. Look down at verse 2 of chapter 39. Uh, Yahweh will bring Gog against Israel. So it's repeating that that phrase. Verses 3 through 6 of chapter 39, Yahweh will destroy them. Verse 7, he does this to make his holy name known amongst the people of Israel. And then verses 17 through 20 are interesting because it describes uh, the slaughter of Gog like a sacrificial feast almost is what the, the language seems to be implying. The birds will come and feast on the flesh of these men of the nation of Gog. Um, and then look at verses 21 and 22. Yahweh's glory will be known amongst the nations and in Israel. So verse 21, And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. All right. So the Lord will, will make his glory known. And then verse 29, when Yahweh pours out his spirit on his people, he shall no more hide his face because he has, he has done all that is necessary to do. And really, if you think about this, this is quite a transformation that we see in the book of Ezekiel. You go back to chapter 16, one of the saddest chapters in the Bible, and yet the Lord promising to what he will do to now he has restored the people spiritually, he's restored them to the land, he's restored the land, he's vindicated his holiness, he's defended them against uh, uh, a huge foe. Um, so thereby he has demonstrated his glory not only to Israel, but to the whole world. And the marvel here is the grace, right? The grace of God that he would do this, right? They're not deserving of it, they don't earn it, but yet he has, has shown them grace. I would also say it's his covenant-keeping Exactly. Right. 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 Yep. Yep. The Lord is is faithful to his covenant promises that he has made in spite of the failure of the covenant partners. And even as we talk about some of the prophecies of this, looking forward, mm-hmm. yet there's now if we look back, there's stuff that's still not yet in right. covenant. Yeah. And, and he will keep it. Yeah, I I believe so. Okay. So all of this again is that that the Lord will establish them, make a new covenant with them in order that his glory may be known, okay? So that leads us to chapter 40. Now, my goal this last week was in trying to uh, 
it, it worked out really well that we split the book because I really want these chapters I wrestle with. Uh, there's a lot of questions and we'll get to it. And I thought, I'm going to figure it out. No, I did not. Uh, the eschatology and these chapters are like whack-a-mole, right? You whack one mole and another, another one pops up, right? So it's, or like a, a jigsaw puzzle where you put one piece in, but every time you put one piece in, another piece pops out, right? That's what it's like. It's so frustrating. So I actually feel more confused <laughs> than I did before. So I don't know. Hopefully this makes, makes sense. What I want to do is I want to walk through chapters 40 through 48 and then talk about some of the, the implications from this and how people interpret these passages coming to pass, okay? So chapters 40 through 48, we have the new temple and the land divisions, okay? Uh, I have this quote from, from Gentry and Wellam. They say, the book of Ezekiel concludes in chapters 40 through 48 with a vision of a renewed temple and God dwelling in the midst of his people once more in a healed land. The conclusion of the book is extremely powerful. The Lord is there. The glory of the Lord has returned to the temple. God is once more dwelling in the midst of his people as king. This restoration involves the rebuilding of the Davidic house in both its meanings in 2 Samuel 7, the dynasty of David and the temple. Okay, So what we see in chapters 40 through 42 is Ezekiel is taken on a tour. Uh, much like we're gonna, we'll go to Revelation 21 and 22. See, John uh, is a very similar thing. He's taken on a, a tour of a renewed temple. And there is, we see in chapter 43, uh, the vision of the whirling wheels appears again, or the mobile throne chariot, as D.A. Carson calls it. Um, But this time it's not described in detail. So if you go read chapters 40 through 42, and in your handout, I put in, that's from the ESV study Bible. They have a, as best as they can put together, what this would have looked like. And you see that this uh, angel is taking Ezekiel into places, and he's measuring the the widths of doorways, the widths of walls, the area of rooms, and you see the the shape. It's a perfect uh, square. Okay, so he's he's given in chapters forty through forty two all the dimensions of this temple, and then in chapter forty three, Ezekiel. This is we see. I think this is kind of the the point of the vision in verse six. Um, this is the this is the purpose. Ezekiel is to tell the people of Israel about this temple so they will be ashamed of their iniquities. Look at verse six. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places. By setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them, they have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and they shall measure the plan. Okay, so again, he's describing all the things they've done how they have committed abominations against the Lord, and then what the goal of describing this detailed temple is to do. They would be ashamed of their iniquities and what they have done, okay? So chapter 43, starting then in verse 13, through chapter 44, 31, describes a reconstituted worship that is performed according to a law 
that is, that is given, okay? Sacrifices are made. See that in chapter 43, verses 18 through 27. They are made as the Lord prescribes. We see in chapter 44, verses 6 through 31, that the Levites alone are ministering in the temple, okay? That was the priestly tribe. No one else is to be doing this, this work, okay? And then notice also in chapter 44, verse 3, this man or this person, the prince, only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. So this prince, uh, being in a, I think a future context age, is what Ezekiel is talking about here. I think he's describing Jesus, right? A new David. Uh, notice that in that verse 3, what is he doing? He's eating, he's eating bread, in the temple, which was something that would have only been allowed for a priest to do, except for David and Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't actually eat the bread in the temple, but if you remember, David was fleeing at one point from Saul, and he goes and eats the holy bread, and then Jesus later on is walking through the fields, and his disciples are plucking grain, and he uses that instance of David to say, like, I'm on a holy mission from God. I am, David was in a sense a priest king, so Jesus is a priest king, and this figure, the prince, is a priest king who has the right to sit in the temple and eat the bread, which only a priest could do. That makes sense? Just th- those are connections, really important biblical theological connections that are being drawn. So I think we understand this prince to be a future Davidic king who would be, who would be Jesus, okay? Um, the other thing that we know that the prince is a kingly figure is because Ezekiel has used that idea of prince multiple times in referring to, uh, to Israel's kings. Okay? Uh, that's, a, that's a term that's been used, used quite a bit. Um, then we see in chapter 45 that the prince has a land portion in verse 7. In uh, chapter 45, verse 18, we see sin offering instructions. Chapter 45, verse 21, we see Passover celebrations. Chapter 46, verse 4, you see Sabbath offerings by the prince. Chapter 46, verse 9, we see feasts observed. And then we get to chapter 47 and look at verse 1. And this is a really important passage. Um, All these other passages, right, are dealing with, it's very uh, similar to like what we would have seen in like Leviticus, Right, instructions for offering and when they're to be offered and who is to offer these sacrifices. Uh, that's what you're having in chapters 44 through 46. But then we get to chapter 47, and we're taken back to the temple. Okay, then he brought me back. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water is flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. What he goes on to continue to describe is this water continues to grow into a huge river that's so great, nobody can pass it, right? It's, it's extremely wide and extremely deep and it goes and it flows all the way down to the Dead Sea. And it has a transformative ability. It makes that Dead Sea fresh water, right? So it's, it's a very... Uh, I don't know how you. I don't know what kind of imagery you would describe that as, uh, but it, it's. Uh, we'll we'll get to get to the importance of that. I think in just a minute. Okay, um, look at verse nine. 
That's where you see the salty water is made fresh. Notice around verse 12, the banks of the river are lined by trees which have fruit for food and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And then we get to chapter 47 and verse 13 and we see a division of the land. Uh, Going back to like, I believe it was in Numbers, there was divisions of the land. This tribe gets this portion. This tribe gets this portion. And then in Joshua, they were supposed to take that land for themselves, okay? Well, here there's a promise of future specific areas. And then go to chapter 48 and go to the end of the chapter, verse 30, and we see uh, the city is described in a little further detail. And we see that it has walls and it has 12 gates. Uh, There's four sides to the city and each side has three gates and each gate is named for one of the tribes of Israel, of course, because there are 12 tribes. And then notice verse 35, the name of the city is the Lord is, excuse me, the Lord is there, okay? Now, so that gets us to the end of the book of Ezekiel. But we go like, what does that mean? <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I do. What does this, what does this mean? Um, in your notes, you have that, again, that diagram from the ESV study Bible, and then there's a chart that corresponds with it, okay? So basically, there's a couple of ways that these passages are interpreted. Um, and my questions that pertain to this uh, pertain with the reconstituted temple in the future and a reconstituted sacrificial system. In my mind, as I think about the, pro, the, the, the program of God, what he has accomplished in Christ, as we get to the future and to see a literal temple rebuilt with sacrifices happening seems to me to be antithetical to everything Christ has done. And so I have to ask the question, is that going to happen? And the reason I ask that is because that's the perspective that I'm, I'm coming from. Like that's the, the way I was taught, uh, the way I've kind of understood things is that there will be a future temple rebuilt in Israel, that the sacrifices will happen. And this will happen during the millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign of Christ, which is described in Revelation 20. So you always need to, in eschatology, kind of shoot at your own side, <laughs> right? You gotta, you gotta ask, is this, have I come to the right conclusion, okay? So here's, here's some of my, my uh, questions and musings on this. Uh, I don't know if I put this in your notes. I think I did this quote from Preston Sprinkle that's very long. And he kind of, he, he summarizes what I'm, I'm thinking and the questions I'm asking. He says, what are we to make of this future temple? Should we anticipate the future rebuilding of a literal temple fully equipped with a Levitical priesthood performing sacrifices of atonement for sin? This literal interpretation is possible and is suggested by the fact that Ezekiel has shown such detailed measurements of the temple and given such detailed guidelines about how worship should be conducted within it. This literal interpretation runs into problems, however, when we look at the book of Hebrews, where the Old Testament sacrificial system is clearly a shadow pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. See especially Hebrews 10. Furthermore, the New Testament appears to treat the prophecy of this temple much like it does Isaiah's prophecy of the new creation, namely, as finding at least initial fulfillment in Christ in the church. You go look at all those other passages, especially note 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Uh, we are a new creation, okay? Jesus clearly referred to the body, to his body as the temple, and Paul referred to the church as the temple of God. Moreover, in Revelation 22, 1 through 22, 5, John envisioned a future holy city called the New Jerusalem, which is remarkably similar to Ezekiel's temple. John, like Ezekiel, was taken by an angelic guide with a measuring rod to a high mountain, 
There he saw a structure, a holy city, in the shape of a cube in Revelation 21.16, a perfectly square temple in Ezekiel 42.15-20. With this, both John and Ezekiel saw a river of life flowing from the throne of God. The key difference in John's vision was that there was no temple in the city because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In John, in John's portrayal, typo, the new heavens and the new earth will include no physical temple to mediate God's presence because through the Lamb, Jesus Christ, believers gain full and abundant access to God. There is no need for a temple, okay? That literally is all my questions <laughs> and, and a lot of the texts that, that we have to wrestle with, okay? So there's essentially three perspectives on how to uh, interpret this with two perspectives being the most prominent. The first would be the literal interpretation. These take this prophecy to be a literal temple that will be rebuilt in the millennial kingdom, uh, which we, we see in Revelation 20, okay? This future thousand-year reign of Christ. They see there the reconstitution of Israel to the land, the division of the land. All of those things are fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and will come to pass in that very literal fashion uh, with the, the true descendants of Abraham, the Jews back in the land, okay? That would be the first one. The second one is definitely the minority view. It'd be the partially literal interpretation. So this would be, uh, they, they interpret this as a, as a guide for the rebuilt temple under Ezra and Nehemiah, because we will see that the temple is, re, is rebuilt when the Jews come back to the land, but it's nothing like this. So the idea is that it's supposed to be kind of an ideal, but of course they don't, they don't do it. Um, so therefore they're saying there is a fuller spiritual application yet to come. Not many people hold that because it's, a pretty bad view. Not a lot of support for that. Thirdly, I call it the figurative interpretation. This view holds that the temple is not a literal temple rebuilt in a future millennial kingdom, but rather that it is figurative of the new creation along the lines of what we see in Revelation 21 and 22. Okay? Now, um, again, my questions have to do with what is the purpose of a temple in the future when we have the risen Jesus reigning in Jerusalem. Like, why do, why do we continue to, to need those, no, those things? I, I do believe there's a future millennium coming, but I still have, there's a lot of questions. Every eschatological view has got holes in it they cannot fully answer. You just can't. If somebody says they have them answered, just tell them they're wrong, okay? Um, and go study their Bibles more, and then they'll play theological whack-a-mole, okay? Okay. Um, so there's the most common response for the literal interpretation is, uh, and I, this is from John Walverd, uh, he basically would say that the literal and the, the purpose of the sacrifices in the millennial kingdom and the rebuilt temple would it's a memorial type of sacrifice. So just as we have the Lord's Supper as a memorial, we're looking back on the finished work of Christ. So in the future millennial kingdom, they're offering these sacrifices. They have the temple. They're no longer uh, atoning for sin, but they're memorializing and showing that God has been faithful to his promise. I really struggle with that. I don't, I don't think that that's, that doesn't answer my, that doesn't satisfy for me. It doesn't answer, answer the questions. Okay. Um, what, I guess, because again, what's the purpose of memorializing something when you have what you are memorializing with you, right? It's already, it's already, Jesus is here. Why do we need to look back on what he came and fulfilled? So, it, exactly. So that's, that's the question that comes to my mind, okay? On the other side, you'd have uh, Kim, this is from Kim Riddlebarger, who's an amillennialist. Now, by amillennial, 
that means that he, he just thinks that the, the reign of Christ, that thousand-year reign, is not a literal thousand years, but it's happening right now spiritually. Okay? One day Jesus will return. The new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in, all of these kinds of things. Okay? Um, so he would see this not as something literal, but as an earthly description of the new creation. So this is what he said. He said, I believe Ezekiel is giving us a picture of the new earth in the prophetic terms with which his readers were familiar. This is a picture of the new earth as the dwelling of God. Ezekiel prophesies it in earthly terms, complete with all the temple utensils, while John describes its fulfilled version in eschatological terms. This means that Ezekiel's vision is a prophecy not of an earthly temple, although the prophet uses earthly language his readers could understand, but of an eschatological temple depicted in the consummated form and unspeakable glory by John in Revelation 21 and 22. So basically what he's saying is, in order for, he wants, he wants his readers to have a hope of a future, and in order for them to understand what that's going to be like, he gives it to them in terms they would understand. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, there's a similar interpretation taken by um, Stephen Wellam and Peter Gentry, who have written a book called Kingdom Through the Covenant, and they are uh, advancing a, uh, a hermeneutic called progressive covenantalism, which kind of if you're familiar with dispensationalism or covenant theology, it's trying to like kind of go in the middle, right? Because everybody's trying to find, find the middle ground. Um, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to their, to their view uh, of, of, an, of interpretation, um, but they would, they would see that uh, the, the new creation and this millennial kingdom are coextensive. They're the same, it's kind of the same thing as what they would be saying. Um, I'm not going to read their quote because we're, we're out of time. If you, look, if you look in your notes again, I put a chart in there, the similarities between Ezekiel 40 through 48 and Revelation 21 and 22. And I, this is the conclusion I've come to just in this area. I think Ezekiel and John are seeing the same thing. I think what Ezekiel is describing is the future new heavens and new earth, just as John is describing it in Revelation 21 and 22. Now, I still think you can have a future millennial kingdom and you don't need a temple in it, you can still have, I think, all of the passages where the Lord is speaking about bringing Israel back into the land, all the nations seeing what he's doing. I think that can still come to pass, and the Lord gets glory for it, but we don't have to have a temple there in order for that to happen, okay? So these are just some of the similarities. If you go look at this, um, you can also, actually, some people will even say chapters 19 through 22 of uh, Revelation and chapters 33 through 48 of Ezekiel are very similar in some of the same themes, okay? But basically, the name of the city, the Lord is there. What does it say in Revelation 21? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Both Ezekiel and John are led to high mountains and see structures like a city, okay? Uh, They both have these 12 gates, and each of them are inscribed with the names of the sons of Israel on them. They are guided by similar type of men who have these measuring cords and they are measuring off dimensions of the city or the temple as it's called in in Ezekiel. Uh, The temple is a perfect square of 100 cubits on each side. The walls of the temple are a perfect square of 500 cubits on each side. And the city is a perfect square of 4,500 cubits on each side. And what does John see? A perfect cube, the new Jerusalem descending down. So the same essentially, uh, uh, size, or the same uh, st- structure. Notice uh, the, the law of the temple, the whole territory on the top of the mountain shall all around be most holy. What is it said about the new Jerusalem? Nothing unclean shall ever enter it. Right? So there seems to be some similarity there. I think the most uh, 
connecting points is this, this river that's flowing out, the water flowing out from under the temple in Ezekiel, and the water flowing out from under the throne in Revelation 22. And they're both describing this, this, this river with trees on either side, and the fruit is for eating, and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. It's, it seems to me very uh, similar language, okay? And that's what we see there. And then I think the other thing is they both have different purposes, right? Ezekiel is to tell this so that the nation of Israel will be ashamed of their iniquities. They will repent. John is to tell this in 21.6 to show his servants what must soon take place. Okay, so I think they are seeing the same things from different perspectives and for different purposes. That's why I think when we see Ezekiel 40 through 48, I don't think he's describing a literal rebuilt temple in the future. I think he's describing the new creation, which all of the other language leading up to this passage has all been like metaphorical in the sense of uh, the dry bones and uh, chapter 36, the... Uh, uh, I'm losing it now. Anyway, there's, to me, there's some real similar progressions as far as spiritual life and restoration. Uh, it's all new creation language. I think this ties right in with that as well.